We thank you that your word, when it's implanted in our hearts, it produces results. You said that your word, when it goes forth, it doesn't go forth without power, and it accomplishes the very thing that it was sent forth to do. You said in your word that it is quick and powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it divides between the, the barriers of soul and spirit, what's just our thinking and what's your thinking, God. And so we ask, Father, that you open the word to us this morning, that you open our hearts to receive, and we just stop and acknowledge you and say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all for joining us via the internet. What a wonderful thing we have with technology these days that you can be tuning in from wherever you are around the world. You know, it's funny, when I look at the reports, I see some of you are watching from Nigeria, we see from Pakistan, from India, from the United States, and from here in Canada, from Montreal, from Kempville, from Ottawa. It's great to see all of you joining in with us. Uh, though you may not be with us physically, you can be with us in spirit, and all you have to do is just open your heart to receive this morning. And uh, it may not be snowy where you were, but where we are, we just got dumped with like two feet of snow, three feet of snow, whatever it was. And But we wanted to come and be here for you this morning. And so thank you for joining in and just lock in with us this morning. We're going to have a great time. So we're continuing on in our series on what is so amazing about grace. And when we started this off four weeks ago, we talked about John Newton and, and the things that went on in his life that led him to be in need of the grace of God. And then what it was that he saw in the word that made him say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And you know, sometimes we can treat the word as so common that uh, when we read it, we don't go, oh, that's awesome. We go, so what? But you know what? When you open your heart and say, God, I want you to show me what you mean. It's amazing how you begin to see little things. And the more you learn about the word, the more you'll realize, oh my goodness, I knew nothing. You know, the, I, I study daily and I study every week and everything to preach messages to you. And I'm always amazed by how little I actually know. And I guess that's the, th the wisdom that comes with age. You realize, I don't know everything I thought I knew. And we get to draw on God who it says he gives us wisdom when we ask. And so, Father, we ask for wisdom in this area of grace. We ask that you would, would show us what your thoughts and your intentions were. Not man's thoughts and not religion's thoughts, but God, we want your thoughts on grace. And we receive them now in Jesus' name. And so if we look at the first verse of Amazing Grace, it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I love that he brings contrast. He says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. When we come to Jesus, we're no longer in the lost state. Maybe there's certain times where we feel like we're lost, but we have to remember, wait, I'm safe in the arms of God. I am God's child. You know, this morning we were singing, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And I am who you say I am, God. And then he goes on to say, I was blind, but now I see. And some of us can read the word going, I don't see it. I don't see it. And I find that whenever I open my word, the best thing to do is say, God, illuminate it to me. Show me. 
If you approach something with a I don't know and I don't understand, you will always get nothing from it. It's like the kid in math class where the teacher says, what's two plus two, little Timmy? And he goes, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know, my, I, have, I have that in my house. Whenever I ask Bennett questions, his first answer is, I don't know. Ugh, I don't know. And I'm like, come on, Bennett. And he goes, four. I'm like, see, you knew all along. But you approached it from the, from the standpoint of, I don't know this. I don't want to do this. But when we open our hearts, it's amazing the things that we'll learn and the things that we realize, oh, wait, I actually did already know that. And so we see in this first verse of Amazing Grace that it speaks of initiation. And that's what we call saving grace. It says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So grace was the provision, and you grabbed hold of that provision through faith. And what is faith? Faith is simply believing what God has said. Your only part in all of God's work in salvation and through grace is just to believe that he did what he said he did. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't make yourself good enough to receive it. The only thing you can do is say, God, I believe it. But then when we get to verse number three of Amazing Grace, it says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And that speaks of continuation. So we see that when John Newton was writing Amazing Grace, he didn't see grace as just a one-time event in his life. He saw it as something that would carry him through all the moments of life. And it says it's brought him safe up to this point, and his belief was that grace would take him all the way to the end. How many people is grace going to take you through to the end? Grace is not just a one-stop shop. It's something that you can go to every day and say, God, I draw on your grace. I believe what you've said about me. And grace can actually enable you to go beyond what you could do in your own strength. And so last week we started looking at Romans chapter 5, and in verse 1 it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And so he tells us that we've been justified by faith. That was saving grace. It's something that took place at salvation. And we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then he tells us that now through him, we also have access every day by faith into the grace in which we already stand. And I love that, the, the imagery of that. It's not that I'm trying to get grace. I'm already standing in grace. Think about it this way, if you, if you were having like a, a craving for, for a Reese peanut butter cups, and God says, guess what, I've dumped a field of Reese peanut butter cups on you, you stand in Reese peanut butter cups, all you have to do is reach down and grab one, or two, or ten, depending on how gluttonous you're feeling that day. Oh, come on, it's Reese peanut butter cups. Who doesn't like them? Peanut butter and chocolate has got to be the best invention. Whoever looked at it and says, hmm, peanut butter, chocolate, let's put them together. There's nothing better. <laughs> and so 
in terms of grace, God has dumped so much grace upon you, it says that you stand in it, and all you have to do is grab hold by faith. But I like how the New American Standard translation put it. It says, through whom we've obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand. An introduction is a beginning. At salvation, we had an introduction to grace, and now we have the option to foster a relationship with it. We can leave it at the, hello, my name is Grace, and we can say, Grace, why don't we go for a stroll? So God's grace was instrumental at bringing you to God, which is saving grace, and now his grace is instrumental in our walk with God. He wasn't just about how it starts. He wanted to carry you through every moment, which is why Peter said, but grow in grace. You can grow in your use of the grace of God in your life. It says, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we started talking about sanctifying grace, and the whole message that we preached, we didn't use the word sanctifying once. And the reason why I did it that way in our introduction to this topic is because we do not use that word in modern English. When was the last time somebody used sanctified in their regular conversation? I can guarantee you nobody has used it in the last year. And so when we talk about sanctifying grace, we might have to bring a little clarity to that word because most people would never use it or have any idea what it means. But if we start here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, Now may the God of peace himself... Okay, so let's, before we go on, the God of peace himself, which means he's the one doing the action, right? right? He didn't say the God of peace with you. He said the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the word sanctify, which he's going to do himself, so let's get that around our heads at the very start. This is not a work we do. This is a work he does in us. And so he wants it to be involved in your spirit, which is the real you. It's the one that was born again, made in the likeness of God. He wants to do it in your soul, which the Greek word there is the word psyche, or psyche is how it's actually said. And it refers to your mind, your will, and your emotions. I think that's just wonderful, that God wants to do a work in our thought processes, that he wants to do a work in our will. Anybody ever had a strong-willed, stubborn kid? You realize that God can do a work in them? <laughs> Please, God, send me your grace in that area for Bennett. Oh, right, Robin? I didn't hear a big amen, and it should have been a good amen right there from you. And he wants to do a work in your emotions. So many people are so emotionally driven. Emotions are good when they're put in the right context, but some people are just so emotionally distraught every day, and God wants to do a work in your emotions and bring a balance to it. And then he also wants to do a work in your body. My goodness, let the grace of God get involved in your body. Why not have a good aging process? You know, it's amazing that when you see families that they all grew up and one was a Christian and the other weren't, how you can see it sometimes on their face. I'm not saying it's all the way at times that way because sometimes people don't draw on what God has given them to draw from. But you can see when you walk in the Spirit and you allow God to be an influence in your life, it even affects your aging process. 
You know, I can't pick on Bill because he's not here today. I, every time I'm so surprised, I'm like, you're 80, what, four now? I'm like, you could pass for 75. You know, when you live a God life, it actually begins to affect your body and everything, every area of your life. And so God wants to sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body. But the word sanctify in the Greek is the, the word I'm not going to try and pronounce. It'd be this one right here if you want to take a stab at it. But it means to separate or dedicate to God or to consecrate a thing to God. And so God is wanting to separate you to himself. Now the word sanctify in its context would generally be used in regards to like a religious ceremony. In the, in the Old Testament, if we want to talk about sanctification, what they would do is they made all of these instruments to be used in the temple, to be used in the, in, in the synagogue, and what they would do is they would purify them, they'd wash them and clean them, and then they would have a ceremony and say, this is now separated and dedicated for God's use and God's purposes. God is wanting to take you, he's wanting to separate you from all the garbage that can be going on in your life, separate you from all the garbage of the world, and he wants to separate you, and he's like, I want to use you. I want to use you, I want to bless you, I want to make, give opportunities for people to see my grace in your life, I want him, them to see my blessing upon you. He wants to separate you and use you as an example for his purposes. Now that doesn't mean we're all going to be preachers. That may be my calling, but he'll use you in the business places. He'll use you in the marketplace. He'll use you when you're at the grocery store or with your families. He wants to use you as an example of his goodness. But another definition of sanctify means to purify or to cleanse externally. And so if we look here at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come now and let us reason together. So this is God speaking prophetically through Isaiah, and he's saying to this to the children of Israel, Come on, guys, let's think about this. Though your sins were like, are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What he was talking about is there's a work that he did internally to you, at salvation. Two weeks ago, we talked about that when we became born again, he cut away the sin nature and he made you one with God, like God, united together with God. But now he wants to sanctify you completely, meaning God wants to do an external work in you just as he's done an internal work. Now, the great thing is, is God always gives us choice. That's right. It was your choice at salvation, was it not? And that means it will be your choice in all the other acts of grace described in the body. He will never do something for you or to you that you don't want him to. He's a perfect gentleman. And so much of religion is how God is wanting to force you to do something. He never will. If God was going to force someone to do something, he would have gone back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he would have said, Adam, Eve, don't eat the apple. Here, give me the apple. Let's take that away. Let's move that away. God will never force anything upon you. He always gives you the choice. And so that's why last week when we were looking at Romans chapter 6, it says, well then, should we 
keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace. The, the reason why that question can be asked is because God will not force you to stop. Yeah. He always gives you choice. And so he says, should we keep on sinning? Because we all, a few verses before that it says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So there's always more grace to stop than power to continue, which means that it's a choice in us. And obviously Paul answered the question. He said, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continually live in it? And the big verse from last week was this. Don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you, 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 let me say it again. You choose to obey? You know, there, was a, there used to be an old show, Pastor Robin might be able to remind me what it is. The devil made me do it. Yeah. Say it again louder in my mic. Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. No, the devil never made you do it. You become a slave to whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. And verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we, through our choice, can choose things that will promote death. And now when I say death, we're not talking about physical death. We're talking about the death of your dreams, the death of blessings, the death of health. There is choices that you can make that lead you away from the blessings God has intended for your life. Just think about this. God will never stop you from gorging yourself with Twinkies. Seriously, he won't. But you know what happens? The more and more you eat, the bigger and bigger you get. And the more strain you put on your body. And then you know what happens when you've got a lot of strain on your body? Things start to break down. You end up in sickness. You end up with diseases and you end up eventually dead. You know, I pick on gluttony for a second because everybody likes to put like all these other sins up there saying these are the worst ones to do. How about the one that is most, most, most widely abused in society today? Obesity rates are on the skyrocket. God doesn't want you to continually make the choice to get bigger and bigger and bigger until you die but he allows you to make it he doesn't force the force you to eat healthy right yeah. he gives you that choice so it says the wages of sin is death there's a way that he's designed us to eat and as a as a society particularly in north america we don't eat that way we don't eat in ways that generally produce health and so he gives us that choice and he says but the gift of God is eternal life. And that word is eternal zoe, eternal God kind of life, eternal God quality of life that comes, everyone say, through Christ Jesus. So, I want to go here this morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, it says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. When I first heard this verse preached, like I think it was probably about 20 years ago now, I had no idea what they're talking about. So let me tell you, the house they're talking about, the great house, is God's house. 
And he said, in God's house, there are different vessels for different use. You know, there's the, there's the serving ware that you put out for a banquet, and then there's the toilet pot that goes under the bed, you know? It, that, that's kind of the imagery from the society that this would be coming from. And so he said, there's vessels of gold, there's vessels of silver, there's vessels of wood, there's vessels of clay, there's ones that are honorable ones that get served at the banquets, and there's ones that are dishonorable. But he says, therefore, so because of that, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. And there's our word that we're preaching from this morning. Sanctified, separated, set apart, consecrated to God, purified, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, it'd be very easy for us to take this message and turn it into a don't do this and don't do that message and list all these great sins. But really, I think most people in, in Christianity have the wrong idea of what sin is. We look at it as all the bad things. You know, murder and envy and anger and, and uh, dishonoring your parents. And you go back to the Ten Commandments that tell, and all the 600 other commandments. And you could look at all these things that you shouldn't do. But do you know the word for sin means to miss the mark? It means there was something that God intended and we didn't hit the bullseye dead on. And I'm going to tell you right now, we miss the bullseye every day. Whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally. But So this message is not about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. We're going to continue on with something else. In the next verse, it says, flee youthful lusts. And I think that's interesting that it says youthful lusts, because when do we generally make our, the biggest mistakes that we spend the rest of our life correcting? When we're young and dumb. And some of us just refuse to grow up and learn to do it right. So he says, flee from your young stupidity. And he says, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What is he trying to say in this verse? Don't create a void, create a surplus. What I mean by that, there's so many things that we could add to a list that I shouldn't do this, and 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 before you know it, you've completely cut out of things out of your everything out of your life. Let's put this as an example. Say you're wanting to lose weight, and you're wanting to change your diet, and your first thought is, I should probably start stop pounding back a whole bag of Oreos every night. And so you start thinking to yourself, stop eating those Oreos. Stop eating those Oreos. I really shouldn't eat those Oreos that are in the cupboard. Yes, I really shouldn't eat those Oreos that are in the cupboard. And before you know it, what you're doing? You're at the cupboard eating the Oreos. Right? Because your focus has become, let's not eat that. And then the whole thing in the center of your mind is Oreos, 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 Oreos. If I were to give you a list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you're actually more likely to do it. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the strength of sin is the law. So if you want to fall into the sin, make a law out of it. Don't do this. You're guaranteed to do it. And so the best thing for us to do, if, going back to our example, if you're wanting to change your diet, it shouldn't be don't eat the Oreos, don't eat the Oreos. It's go throw the Oreos in the garbage and fill your cupboards of what you should be eating. Then you no longer have the temptation, and when you're hungry, you've got something to eat. 
And that's just a natural example, but we can take that and apply that to the spiritual things in our lives as well. But it says the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying that there's a, when you make it a law, you're empowering sin. But when Jesus is our focus, he gives us victory and we're able to overcome it. Right. If we look at what Jesus said to his own disciples, they came to him and they said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You've got, have no other gods before me. Don't murder don't steal, honor your parents, don't covet, you know, whichever one you want to name, they asked him, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Last time I checked, that wasn't one of the commandments. But God took all the intentions of the law and he wrapped it up in love. And he says, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, not one of the commandments. So they, they asked him, what's the greatest? And he wrote the new one, the only one we need. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he said, everything that the law tried to do, they are fulfilled in this. Love God, love people. You know, I think a lot of Christians need to get a hold of that because we are fighting to have the Ten Commandments on, on courthouse steps and the government striking them down like, oh no, they're tearing down their religion. If you want to fight for something, fight for, for God so loved the world. That's just a side note. But Paul caught on to that in Galatians chapter 5, and he says, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But then he goes on a little bit further. Next verse he says, but if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. And so in the context, if he's talking about the law, and that the law is summed up in love your neighbor, if we're constantly looking for faults to tell our neighbor not to do, that's not what Paul's intentions was. He said, if you're always biting and devouring and subtracting and taking away, watch out. You're actually destroying one another. So he goes on in the next verse and he says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. He says, but when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation to the law. This is great. I want to, I want to read it out of the message translation instead of the New Living this morning. And it says, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. It says repetitive and loveless cheap sex and stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. I think that hits a lot of society today. How many people are struggling with mental and emotional garbage because they've been trying to do things their own way in their own strength? That's what the, the power of 
of the law does to you. It says frenzied and joyless grabs at happiness, trinket gods and magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, uh, temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives. That's just such huge in our society today. It says small-minded and lopsided uh, pursuits, vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Isn't that huge in the politics this day? If you're not for me, you're definitely against me and I'm going to try and tear you down with everything that I can. Everybody, just because they don't agree with you, doesn't make them your enemy. This is uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on. I love how Paul put that there. I can continue on and say a whole bunch of more things that could come out of trying to follow the law and trying to do it in your old strength. But then he doesn't leave it there. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The Holy Spirit's job, and when we allow Him and when we follow Him, pursuing love with love of God and pursuing loving our neighbors, what happens is these things just show up in our lives. So let's switch back over to the message translation because it says, He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Now, When was the last time you saw a tree out in an orchard going, I need to produce an apple. I just got to produce an apple. I got to be good. I got to get it right. I got to produce an apple. Never. What happens? Given the right soil, the right amount of rain, and the right amount of sun, what happens? Apples grow. When you find yourself drawing from God His strength and His grace, these fruits just appear in your life. It's not something that we have to struggle for. Didn't we start with that Himself will sanctify us, spirit, soul, and body? When we work with Him and move with Him, these are the fruits that grow in our life, not that we have to strive for in our lives. And so he says he brings gifts into our lives much the the same way as fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance for life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that basic holiness permeates things in people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. And then he caps it off with this. He says, legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. So when it comes to sanctification and God's external purification of you, Him correcting and fixing and growing you in your life, it doesn't come by you saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. It comes by saying, God, lead me, show me, grow me, and then being obedient to listen. You know, I think I find most people are in this position of this next verse. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 says, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? I think most of Christianity falls in that position. 
I just don't want to do it anymore. Why? Because we've been focusing in the wrong spots. We've been focusing on the do's and the do nots. Most of Christianity is more focused on behavioral modification than it is about loving Jesus. My job is not to change what you do. My job is to point you to Jesus, and he does the work. The Holy Spirit does a work in us that no man can do. So he says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? This is what he says, come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You ever notice what happens via association? You ever seen a good kid get hooked up with the wrong friends and start doing the wrong things? You ever seen the bad kid get hooked up with good friends and start going the good way? That's what it's like with God. We're not in this to try and change ourselves, but when you're with the Father, the Father begins to rub off. Because his whole purpose says that he might sanctify and cleanse her, he's talking about the church here, with the washing of the water of the word. When you're in his word, when you're reading about his love, reading about his goodness, the word is washing away everything else. And his whole purpose is in verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, if this is God's heart, shouldn't we see this reflected in the ministry of Jesus? Because isn't he the one that was full of grace and full of truth? That he was that moved the heart of God with so much love that he sent Jesus? Shouldn't we see this very thing reflected in his ministry? Now, it's interesting to note that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for the religious. The ones who were trying to do things in their own strength. Trying to make things themselves out to be more than they were. And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, you are whitewashed tombs of death. Them forcing the law on people and saying, this is what you have to do to the most extremes. He said, you're leading people to death. He said, you stand out on the corners and you pray loudly so that people will see you. He said, you'd be doing better if you'd go into your own room, shut the door and pray in secret and your God who sees in secret will reward you openly. His strongest words were for those who were caught up in religion of works and trying to obtain their own righteousness. But do you know that his kindest words were reserved for those who were caught up in sin? And here we see in John chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. And they said, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you 
say. I always think, where's the guy? Why did they only bring the woman? Because it was probably one of the Pharisees. <laughs> and so they throw her down and they say, the law commands that we kill her. What do you say? And it says in verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus, he stooped down and he just wrote in the dust with his finger. He completely ignores the whole thing. He knows they're trying to trap him, and he just starts writing in the dust. <laughs> and it says they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up, and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stopped, and he went back down, drawn in the dirt. <laughs> but do you know what he said to them? Those Pharisees knew they had screwed up. Because the, the law said that if you miss in one point, you've missed in it all. And so Jesus brought it back to their remembrance by saying, the one who's never sinned gets to throw the first stone. He was the only one that was out without sin. And so when his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Because as I said earlier, the older you get, you realize your flaws. You realize your shortcomings. When you're young, you think you know everything. If you've ever been a teenager, you know this. If you ever have a teenager, you will know this. They think they know everything. And the older you get, the realization comes that I don't know what I thought I knew. And so they leave one by one, oldest to youngest, and only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus answered, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Under the law, it says she was supposed to die. Jesus said, I don't care about the law. I care about love and mercy. I don't condemn you. And that's the very thing he's done with you. It says in Romans 8, chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God's first words to you are, I don't condemn you. And when he offers grace, it actually empowers you to do the second point. Go and sin no more. When grace is given first, it allows empowerment. When condemnation comes first, it increases even more sin. But you know, that was never God's intention. He said that he himself would sanctify you. And so every day, he is offering grace to us. Just like at salvation. Wherever you are right now at home, God is offering grace to you right now. And every morning when you get up, you just say, Father, I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. I thank you that you've chosen not to condemn me, that you've chosen to lift me up, to dust me off, and to give me your love and your mercy. So he said to her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he said the same thing to you. 
It says, For he raised us up from the dead along with Christ. He has seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in the future ages as examples of his incredible wealth and grace and kindness towards us as he has shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. You don't change people by telling them what to change. You change people by lifting them up, dusting them off, and extending love and grace. And so, Father, we thank you for your love and your grace this morning. We thank you that's the very thing that you've extended to us because you're the one that does the change. That it's not up to me to fix my life. It's up to me to follow after you and to follow after your love. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you that you open our eyes to be able to see your love and grace. We ask you to open our hearts to be able to receive your grace more and more and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we thank you for it. Maybe you're watching this morning and you haven't had your introduction into grace at salvation. You don't have to wait another moment. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I receive you. I thank you, Father, for sending him. And grace will flood your life. Maybe you're struggling with sin this morning and you keep going back to the same things over and over again. All you need to do is say, Father, I surrender myself. I thank you that you sanctify me. And he does the work. And so, Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in with us this morning, and thank you for being here in the midst of a snowstorm. You guys are just going to have an awesome week, and we'll see you all soon.